Question and answers. Question and answer period now, Professor. Question and answer period. Yes. Okay. Um, welcome back. So it's. Um, It's over to uh, question and answer periods now. I drew a little quick diagram here to summarise what, the, what, what, what we concluded from the earlier lectures. This is the interest rate spread here. And we have the, uh, the bid price and the offer price. Sorry, the bid interest rate and the offered interest rate. The offered interest rate is determined by arbitrage between the bond and the stock market. That is to do with marginal productivity or space. And the bid interest rate is to do with the arbitrage between present versus future goods, i.e. present meaning gold coin and future goods meaning bonds. And that's to do with time. So you've got space and time uh, combined in one, um, in one um, description. And to close it, you have the market maker in between. So that's just a quick summary picture in case anyone's unclear. So uh, questions? Louis. The question is about the market maker. In, in your uh, model, Professor, is, is, does the market maker play any other role or plays just that role? Or is it, does it matter if he plays other roles? Probably not. Probably not? The reason I bring it up is uh, I remember distinctly uh, congressional hearings when the head of Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, etc., were being questioned um, about enormous amount of losses, of course, that occurred because they were being bailed out with tax fund, taxpayer money. They wanted explanations, and one line of questioning was to Goldman Sachs, who claimed that as a market maker, they could sell to their clients certain fixed interest securities and do the opposite behind the scenes as a market maker, and claimed that that was that's what a market maker does. Now, question to you is, do you agree? And second, do you think as, because, because Goldman Sachs is more than just a market maker, they're a fund manager as well, they're a banker as well, so they, they wear many hats. Don't you think that they, they should disclose um, that they might take the other side of the trade of what they recommend their clients to do? Or because they're a market maker, it's all okay? Come in, please. Well, uh, I think you have to be much more knowledgeable about the actual nitty-gritty of the markets than, than I have. I'm following, of course, the things, and I realize that these 
big banks played an enormously important role in the CF. CF what? GFC, Global Financial And of course, they are to a very large extent responsible for what But I look at it as a more the process spread over a longer period of time. I, I can't think of it that within a year or so there is some conspiracy, some graft, some uh, corruption, and then as a result we GFC happens, and then we blame it on Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan or somebody else. So I, I think if I'm looking for scapegoats, I would probably say it goes back all the way to <coughs> 1971. This was in the brewery. In the history of economics of the past 40 years is just extraordinary and and everybody who was in influential posts, especially during the past few years, bears a responsibility for the it's, it's it did a great deal of damage. Now what you say that uh, the market maker could have several roles to play, and I would add to it, yes, and in itself there's nothing wrong with this. But of course, if there's conflict of interest, which probably there was, then it's a different story. So that's what you're looking for if you want to find the you know, conflict of interest. Now normally a market maker, by the nature of his business, has a position. So there is no conflict of interest. Of course, he may prefer one bond to another. He's happy when this bond is picking up and running your head. Uh, and he is not so happy when another bond. But I think that's not what I call a conflict of interest. But perhaps some of you can what? bring examples of conflict of interest which happened in this 2008 uh, fiasco. Don't you consider it a conflict of interest if call it whatever, firm XYZ has other people's money under management and they recommend that they should have in their portfolios this asset. Uh, uh, that would but they sell it. No, that, well, yeah, that's right. And actually they, they prove that this right. is what has happened. Yeah. Oh, that's ridiculous. That's a conflict, right? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's just thinking. Fraudulent, right? 
would have said to uh, this synthesis? Would he have appreciated it or dismissed it? Well, Mises uh, had a problem. He published his first very successful and very good book, The uh, Theory of Money and Credit, in uh, 1912, before World War I and he was still a very young man in the early 20s. And he unfortunately committed himself to the quantity theory of money. And I have a feeling that in later life he realized his mistake. I mean, it's all right to say good things about the quantity theory of money, but to commit yourself so rigidly on the side of the quantity theory of money and oppose real bills, and I think this is similar. Uh, although real bills don't enter here, but uh, the quantity theory comes through. Can, can you uh, see that the quantity theory directly or indirectly enters this model? Mm. No. Hmm? No. Well, uh, you know, you asked me a question. I have to guess what mm. would a man do who is long since who has long since died if we confronted him with a, a new development in the theory. Uh, but knowing that 
he was a very fair-minded man and a very modest man with no sweeping opinions that he would sweep, sweep you out your foot with his uh, with his uh, great respect in which you are had. I, I know I never met him, but Hugo Salinas did meet him several times, and uh, that was his his opinion of the man. Marvelous case, uh, uh, trying to encourage you as I I would feel that he he would see that point. You see, but. The, Oh yeah, Theo Money and Credit, he committed himself not on just on the side of quantity of money, but also time, time preference being such a, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, mystical power. I think he made these very strong commitments. And when time came to loosen up a little, he either was too old or just uh, reluctant to revise his whole life work because this went pretty deep into his life work. So I, I don't know the answer. What is your feeling? Um. My impression of von Mises is only from what you've told me about him. And you've told me that he was a very fair-minded individual mm -hmm. and that he would be willing to listen to interpretations of his, his works, which is in complete contrast to the Ludwig von Mises Institute, no. who deify him and um, woe betide anyone that uh, contradicts no. His scripture, which is a big, big shame, really. We confronted this when I was writing my book. To Jesus was wrong; he was an idiot. Mm. Well, that doesn't sound good. Mm. And we came to that he was a product of his times, and in those times, it was inconceivable that governments would default and widows and orphans would be, you know, cheated and. So he said, this is inconceivable, let's not even talk about it. But of course, times have changed. So what, you know, he, sh he should have to live in this day and age to confront these issues, not, you know, 100 years ago or something. Any more questions? Louis? Uh, in the interest rates spread mm. out of there, or in everything we discussed today about the formation of the interest rate. There's no central bank. No central bank. It's not necessary. Necessary. Um, and, I mean, is there... What, what role, if any, would the state play in terms of issuing bonds Because, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the gold bond in 
not necessarily state. It could be public, uh, the state, the sovereign bond. It could be a, a private corporate bond. Yes. It could be any issue. Yes. So yes. there's no there's no role for government. Uh, perhaps that's going a little bit too far. I'm, I'm not sure because uh, the government bond perhaps has a role to play. On the one hand, you are tempted to say no role. It's best if the government does not have any debt. I mean, or over a period of say three or four years, it, it should liquidate, it bring back its debt to zero. And, you know, I'm not suggesting the Keynes type of uh, uh, here's a word for Com compens compens compensatory that's not the word the idea is that if it's a, a year of recession, the government can overspend, and then, but it's incumbent on the government to retire that in the next few good years. Now, complimentary. Complement, complimentary financing. Complimentary financing. The uh, so. Uh, it's not the biblical seven lean years and seven uh, years of plenty, because that would be 14 years, it's a bit too long. But, you know, I tell you why it might be necessary to have, well, not perhaps necessary is too much saying, but why I think some government that might be acceptable. <clears throat> Assuming that the good faith is there and the government are willing to disclaim or even criticize the past actions of defaulting on their bonded debt or confiscating gold coins or any of those things which made the history of the 20th century a shameful history, which it is because of the behavior of the government. The uh, United States Constitution is an admirable document because it says that the government has no privileged position. It should obey all, it doesn't say it in these words, but that's the meaning government should obey all the business laws and practices, there should be no exception. You know? And then of course they started loosening it up and introduced all kinds of exceptions when the government can do this, get away with that, and so on. Issue or obligations which they may renounce quite all right. And, but there are 
for instance, you would like to have a benchmark Now, I, I don't have the answer to this question, but I'm putting it to you under this scheme. Would, uh, because there's arbitrage. It looks plausible that as a result of this arbitrage, there will be uh, not a unique interest rate, but a unique uh, spread between the ceiling and the floor. But would it help if uh, the government bond also was there? I, I don't know. I, or, or take this other thing. Government bonds, well, in this case gold bonds, would be very desirable assets for insurance companies, pension funds, trust funds, and so on. So, I, I don't have a, a set opinion on that. Well, I think that if you're, if you're under a gold standard, the government still has the ability to tax uh, to whatever level they want, but they don't have the ability to print money. So they can go insolvent. Um, so the only reason, let's say, one would buy a government bond yielding 5%, let's say a 10-year bond, over a Unilever bond, 10-year duration yielding 5%, is that the government has a stick. So they can raise taxes up 50-60% if they need to in order to you know, so, so it's sort of like a threat you should like the government bond because we have a stick basically and we can tax as much as we want but the government should still be borrowing for uh, productive enterprise or productive purposes so if, if just like Unilever would be borrowing for a particular purpose so the government should borrow for a particular purpose as well. Um, that's the only thing I could add in, sort of the, the only difference would be the stick that the government has taxing power-wise. They would have lost their ability to, to print money and obviously they have no ability to influence the interest rate per se. Um, well, you see how all these different fields overlap, mm. interest rate theory, taxation theory, you know, you might say that the government, so the taxes should be minimal, which sounds good, but then there are problems. So really, uh, I don't think that we have a final theory which answers all questions. We are trying to have one, but obviously this will be a longer procedure, and um, there is certainly room for debate. 
and all these questions. Ben. I would like to come back to your community bond and the government bond because I think this is like exactly what we don't want. The Unilever Fund, they are entrepreneurs, they know how to create value and the government doesn't enhance the ability to raise taxes whenever we want. So why do we want the government bond? I mean, in a free market it would be that the government bond can't compete with the private bonds because they are so much more productive, right? Well, if you owned a government bond, you would be sort of safer in the knowledge that if you want to get your principal back, they can raise the taxes. So, no, it's not, but then you're getting into a different philosophical argument. So that's all I'm saying is that that would be the difference. I want to interject a couple of things here. Somebody alluded to everything the government does, it does with a stick. <laughs> that is the difference between the government and the corporation. Do you want them competing against UPS and FedEx for delivering packages? And the government has a gun and FedEx and UPS do not. Mm. Does it not create a conflict of interest if some voters own government bonds and want taxes to be raised mm. and everyone else does not own government bonds but they have income that they don't want to be taxed at an increased rate? The very conflict between groups of people is because the government by nature, what it does when it interferes in markets is take from some and give to others, make, you know, break some and make others. The less that the government is doing that, the better. I can't think of many productive reasons why a government would want to borrow. I mean, <laughs> if anyone can give me a... Well, <laughs> but here, here is some idea. I, I leave it to you to decide how much merit it has. The government may need money for legitimate purposes, but raising taxes because the government cannot borrow by constitution or something, raising taxes is really an evil. And it may be just another evil because the other evil is the power to uh, run deficits or go into debt, sell government. Why? Because the business, the business must know what the tax liability is to be optimal, right? I mean, if you have a business and there's a threat that the government may raise your tax rate, then this makes the business more inefficient. Because there is this big unknown. God knows they have enough unknowns. The uncertainty in nature and the so now if you add an additional unknown, which is the tax rate, and just give a blank check to the government that you can write your check to your payable to yourself by deciding what the tax level is. This is an evil. 
Amigo. So tax in the business enterprise is uneven. The power to issue bonds is another evil. They are kind of uh, com uh, complementary. But you have to allow that futures uncertain or there could be some some disaster and the government has to step in. And for that reason it either has to have the power to borrow or the power to, to change. I mean, we know that and taxes are inevitable. But what could be perhaps avoided is raise the changing the taxation level, which is bad for everybody, business and everybody, individuals as well. So I'm just throwing that at you. Does this have any merit or not? I don't. I'm not sure. And of course, there's the other argument that business shouldn't be taxed. I mean, the shareholders of a business may be taxed, but if you, on the top of that, tax the business, this is double taxation, and that's of course something to avoid. And maybe with the blank prohibition on taxation on business, in addition to taxation on individual income, would, would solve the problem. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. But uh, somehow this idea of the government can just Land, uh, sorry, government can borrow and issue as 